everybody here and see. Can everybody here and see? Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Man Logic, where we're addressing issues that are, you know, pretty much specific to the men in our communities. So, uh, and whether you're Muslim or you're not Muslim, um, I think the language is pretty much universal, and everybody can pretty much benefit from what I have said and what I'm going to say today. Uh, I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I could do um, some some type of justice to this, this subject matter. The subject is, is really important in the Islamic community as, as, as well as in other communities. So I'm only hoping that, inshallah ta'ala, I can do some justice to this subject. And today's man logic, we're talking about why men abuse their wives. I initially put beat their wives, but I brought in the language a little bit and put abuse their wives because abuse abuse can be in many different forms. When you say why doesn't why does a man why do men beat their women, then we're restricting um, domestic violence to just the physical aspect. And as we will see, domestic violence has very little to do with uh, physical beating of a person. All right. Domestic violence is not about beating a person or a man beating a woman. That is not what domestic violence is about. That's only a vehicle. That's only a tool that is used to achieve the initial goal. And the goal of domestic violence is control. Make no mistake about that. So if we said that uh, why do men beat their wives, then that means that we're restricting um, domestic violence to just the physical abuse that men you know do to women when it's actually broader than that it could be emotional it could be financial it could be psychological you know it could be sexual it could be spiritual as we're going to see inshallah so i brought in the language a little bit and i said um man logic number seven why men abuse their wives why do they abuse their wives? You guys follow me? So for those of you that are listening, in Periscope, I had to turn off the comments for you guys. You know, it is what it is. Um, Facebook Live, you guys are a little bit more mature. I'm doing a lot of discussions with you guys is a little more mature. But Periscope, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I will turn the chat on after the lecture is over with when we start the question and answer session in Shallow Tyler. Alright, so for now, for those of you who are on Periscope, you, you have nothing to do but just listen. And after the lecture is over, inshallah ta'ala, I'll open up the chat for questions and answers. So as I pondered on, on, this, on this discussion, I was trying to figure out, like, what angle to come, what, what angle to approach the situation. I don't want to approach it from the normal um, brothers beating their wives, Islam say it's haram or whatever the case may be. That's, that's cliche. And, and we're beyond that, man. <clears throat> and these discussions here, these discussions are, are more substance-filled discussions. 
All right, we're beyond the cliche of it being haram and Islam says you can't do that or whatever the case may be. Well, guess what? It's being done. Women are being abused in the Islamic community as well as in many other faith-based communities, but I'm only dealing with the Islamic community. So if there are people on that are not Muslim, that, you know, have a different faith, then, you know, you're welcome. You're welcome to join. You're welcome to listen. You're welcome to benefit and to share whatever you can uh, about this topic, as I said before, I'm 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 no expert on the topic, right? I just went in, I did my research on it, and I'm just you know attaching the religious component to this to help us make sense out of what's happening in our communities. So when you think about a man who abuses his wife, let's go into the mentality. Let's go into the mind of a man who abuses his wife. Okay. Let's, let's take a journey into the mind. Let's swim through the mind of a man who abuses his wife, whether physically, emotionally, financially, whatever. Let's, let's look at the psychology of this individual. Before, you know, we go into that, let me go back a little bit, right, to the, to the history of this, all right? Um, and... Life is paradoxical in that you, you can only live it forward, but you can only understand it backwards. So as we live life forward, we can only understand it backwards. So we got to go back in order to understand how we got to this point. All right, you guys follow me. You guys on Facebook Live, can you hear and see? I'm not getting any response from you guys, so... Okay. Alright. So we gotta go back in order to go forward. So, since the beginning of our creation as human beings, um, man, mankind, as well as jinn, as well as jinn, um, these are another form of creation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created before the human being. And the jinn is... The species from which Shaitan emerged. And Shaitan was, his original name was Iblis. Alright? So, so, from the beginning of time, from the very beginning of time, uh, men and jinn have always had an inclination towards divine qualities. Alright? The divine higher qualities. Alright? And... The thought of being in total control is for a human being is exhilarating. Like when you're in control of something, right? You think all the way back to when we were children, right? And mom left or dad left and somebody wanted to be in charge, right? It was probably the oldest child. I'm in charge, right? Because there's just something about control and power that is exhilarating to the human being, Right? When you go into corporate America, you got, uh, you know, a hundred different people working for the same company, all vying with one another for the same position. And it's a real cutthroat world because people will dry snitch on people. People will just outwardly snitch on people all to get to that top position so that they can be in control. Right. And then when the person who was an entry level along with you finally reaches a supervisor position, look at how they change. Look at the type of person that they become when they have power. All right, power and control is exhilarating. 
And human beings, as well as jinn, have, from the very beginning, had a natural inclination towards control and power. These are divine qualities. These are qualities that only belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah has given a select few from amongst his creation in the world, you know, that position. I mean, even amongst animals, right? Even in the animal world, you always have that one animal that is vying with the rest of the animals to be the king of the jungle, right? It, it exists even amongst animals, but amongst human beings. And that's, in, that's instinct, right? That is instinct for animals. For human beings, it is intellectual. It, it is a conscious decision to be in control. Alright? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, listen to this ayah. Allah says in surah number 7, ayah number 6. Surah to araf Surah number 7, ayah 6. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَهُوَ الَّذِي خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ فِي سِتَّةِ أَيَّامِ وَكَانَ عَرْشُهُ عَلَى الْمَاءِ لِيَبَلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلًا that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he is the one, God is the one, who created the heavens and the earth in six days. Thumma al arsh. And then, uh, excuse me, different ayah. He said that he is the one who created the heavens and the earth. Fi sittati ayam, in six days. Wa kana arshuhu al ma. And his, his throne was above water at that time. His throne was above water. And he did this to test you to see which one of you are best in deeds. His throne was where? Where was Allah's throne? Above water. Right? Pay attention. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists before anything exists, and His throne was above water. Where was His throne? Above water. Okay, pay attention. What is the concept that I'm trying to draw home here? What is the concept here? And that is that human being as well as jinn have always had from the very beginning of their creation a natural inclination towards power. Power and control and divine qualities. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala existed before um, anything else existed and his throne was above water. That's it. There's an ayat I gave you from the Quran, Surah number 7, ayah 6, and there's an authentic hadith from the Prophet ﷺ that I gave you. Okay? His throne was above water. Now watch this. The Prophet ﷺ, he also said, In the Iblis yaba'a arshahu ala ma thumma yaba'athu sarayahu fa'adnahu fa'adna minhum fa'adnahum minhu manzilatan a'adhamuhum fitna. Ruahu Muslim. In Sahih Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ, he said that Iblis, Iblis, Shaitan, He put his throne over water. You follow me? That Shaitan puts his throne over water. And then he dispatches his army, his jinn, his devils. He dispatches his army... And the closest of his army to him are the ones that create the most fitna, the most trial and tribulation amongst mankind. Where was Allah's throne? Above water. Where did Shaitan put his throne? Above water. Why did Shaitan put his throne above water? Because Shaitan is trying to Im- imitate Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because to, to imitate power, right, gives you power. To imitate power gives you power. 
You understand? It makes you feel like you are in the position of power. Right? You always got that one co-worker that asks like they're your supervisor. And you're like, yo, dude, you are an entry-level worker just like me. Stop acting like the supervisor. You're not the supervisor. Right? You always have that one person. Right? Right? So, Shaitan puts his throne over water trying to imitate Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Shaitan dispatches his shayateen, his jinn, his devils out into the world, just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dispatches the angels out into the world. That's that's as it relates to the jinn, the devils. Right? Alright, now let's look at the human being. How did Shaitan manage to tempt Adam? Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Adam not to eat from the tree. And we said to Adam, live in this paradise. And don't come close to this tree. Right? Clear directive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Live in Jannah, you and your wife, free to eat anything. Do not touch this tree. Right? How did Shaitan tempt Adam to eat from the tree? What was the one thing that Shaitan was able to make Adam ignore a clear directive from God? A clear directive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is man's universal vulnerability. This is man's Achilles heel, right? Man, not woman, man. This is man Achilles heel right here. What is, what is man's weak point, our vulnerability? Every man, and I, I wouldn't, I really have doubts about you as a man if you, you don't really seek this, but every man is seeking power. Every man is seeking power, position, authority. Because you couldn't be a man without authority. No, not lust. That's not man's greatest weakness. Women is not man's greatest weakness. Power. 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 Authority. Every man in, in, in the world is looking to position himself at some point in his life to be in control. Because in order for you to be a man, to be classified as a man, you have to have some control. Right? You have to have some control, some type of authority, even, even if it's only over your own affairs. Which is why if a man is incarcerated, Islamically, if a man is incarcerated, put in prison, right? His wilaya, his authority over his own daughter is taken from him and given to the next person in line. The uncle, the grandfather, whatever. Because he doesn't have authority over himself. So how could he have authority over somebody else? It makes you less than a man. Power. Understand? Power, authority. That's our Achilles heel. And, and you know... Sometimes men seek that through women, right? You look at a pimp. He has all of these women that he's in control of. And it makes and, and pimps are, are really punks, to be honest with you. When you look at a pimp, he's usually very skinny, very, you know, uh, dope fiendish. You know, the, the images that we see of pimps, right? Iceberg Slim, if everybody anybody is familiar with, with that, that book, right? But they, but the fact that they control women gives them this sense of authority and power. So power is not just about being big and strong or whatever. It's about having control over someone. Alright? So 
Pay attention as I'm, I'm flowing through this. So Shaitan was able to get Adam to, uh, to ignore a clear directive from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with a single whisper. One single whisper that was able to convince him that he would be God-like. Right? He would be immortal. God-like. God-like quality. Someone come to you and say, hey, listen, you can live forever just like God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, For waswasa ilayhi shaitan. And shaitan whispered to Adam. Qala ya Adamu hal adullaka ala shajratil khuldi wa mulkin la yabla. Shaitan said, O Adam, can I not direct you to a tree that will give you everlasting life? Everlasting life. And a dominion that will never diminish. I will give you mulk. I will give you dominion. Right? And this is one of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's name. Maliki Yomadin, the king of the day of judgment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grab the earth in his hand on the day of judgment and say, Who is the king today? Because human beings, we love authority, we love superiority, we love, you know, exerting, you know, showing our power over people. We love that. We love that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask on the day of judgment, Limanil Mulkul Yom, today who does the kingdom belong to? Lillahi al Wahidul Qahar. And then Allah responds, Lillahi to Allah, Al Wahid, the only one, Al Qahar. The irresistible. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers the question because the kings on that day will not be allowed to speak. The king of all kings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God almighty, is only one that will speak on that day. So there's a natural propensity towards a more divine you know, disposition as human beings, which is why the Islamic injunction to be humble is so greatly emphasized in the Quran and the Sunnah. All throughout the Quran and the Sunnah, the whole story with Adam and Khidr is about humility. The whole story of Yusuf, right? And all of the trials that he went through, you know, to arrive at a position to be the king of Egypt. All of that was about humility. He went through a humbling process because usually people become great later on in life after they've had some humbling experiences. Any person that you meet in life that is successful, has, if you listen to their story, they, have a, they had a, a humbling experience. Because that's what humility does to you. The Prophet وسلم, he said, Men ta'ala. Whoever humbles himself before God, humbles himself before Allah, Allah will raise him in degrees. That's usually how it works. So anytime you come across people who are very successful people, right? You look at the biographies of some uh, great actors and, and singers, musicians, or whatever the case, you'll find that they came from some very humbling circumstances. Because that's usually the process for greatness, right? Because humility is the fertilizer for your heart. It allows you to embrace your position of stardom and your position of authority with humility. So you go through this humbling process, all right? So you find in Islam that, you know, the, the emphasis, great emphasis is placed on humility because of that human you know, that human inclination towards arrogance and pride and power and, you know, authority, right? And as it relates to women, so now that we got that out the way, I just wanted to take you, you know, to our origin as men. 
All right. Men naturally want to be in control. And then you have some cockolds, you know, some, you know, a uh, youth, as they're called in Arabic, a uh, youth. Uh, is someone the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said That the, um, the youth will not enter into Jannah and the, the youth is a cockold This is the type of man who has no authority in his household Has no authority over his woman Has no power His woman walks over top of him Right? His woman does whatever she wants to Talks to him any type of way she wants to Steps all over him He has no authority, no position, no nothing And as a result of that Even he is, this type of man is even punished According to Islamic tradition This type of man is punished on the day of judgment In front of God Because man's natural position Is to be the patriarch Is to be in a position of authority And any man that does not You know um, any man that does not seek to be an authority or not seek to be in control, not to, even if it's only, even if it's over his own affairs, that according to Islamic tradition, then this is less than a man. This is less than a man. So do you think about that in terms of men who keep going back and forth to jail? You keep going back and forth to jail. You don't want authority over your own life. You don't want power and control over your own life. You keep going back and forth to jail, and then you, you got all of these sisters flocking to marry these dudes in jail. Why you keep marrying a guy in jail? If he can't marry his own daughter off while he in jail, why you marrying him while he in jail? Islamically, his wilaya, he is stripped of his own guardianship over his own child if he's incarcerated. And then you got a woman who seeks to go marry a man who was incarcerated. I, I just don't understand the logic in that. I really don't. According to Islamic tradition, he would be less than a man. Okay, so, moving on, the Prophet ﷺ, as it relates to women, so now when you take this man who's spends his entire life, you know, navigating through the challenges that come to him in his life to position himself to be in a position of authority, whether over his life, over the life of his children, over the life of whatever's going on in his, you know, in his circle, Right? So that's his natural disposition. And, and sisters need to understand that. Because when we go into marriage Islamically, in, in marriage Islamically, uh, Islam is going to give you a role. You play a role when you marry into, you know, when you go into marriage in Islam. I can't speak for any other religion. All right. Because some, you know, some religions allow the woman to be the man and the man to be the woman. Some, you know, religions allow, you know, you know, the, the man to be the woman and the woman to be the woman. And some religions allow for the, the man to be the man and the, and the woman to be the man. But in Islam, the man is the man and the woman is the woman. You are given roles when you marry in Islam. So whatever your role was, you was an independent woman, whatever you were before you... you once you step into the realm of marriage, you are in a totally different environment. You're in a different environment and you have to play a role. Right? You 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 play a role. You play a role. Alright? So as it relates to men in their relationship with women, it is very easy for us as men to lose sight of the fact that women are not your property. You don't own them. You don't have control over them. Right? You don't you don't control them. So in, in everything that we try to control in our lives, and this is where a lot of our frustration as human beings come in, is because we don't have things slip through our fingers, we don't have control over them, right? 
But when, when we have a woman and under our auspices, we have a woman under our authority, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these women are Allah's, are God's servants, not our servants. And your pursuit of authority, complete authority, complete you know, superiority, and your pursuit of that as a man, it's very easy for us to lose sight of the fact that when we marry women, that although under our auspices, they do not belong to us. They, be they are the servants of Allah, not our servants. You follow me? They're not our servants. Okay? Marriage in Islam has allocated for both husband and wife their roles. But sometimes we are, but, and, and the woman, unfortunately, this is where a lot of women's frustration comes in. Because as a woman, she was by herself. She was independent. Right? She was independent. She had control over all of her affairs. And then she marries into Islam and she's put into this role, which is, you know, you know, untraditional for her. You know, she's been single. She's been handling all of her affairs by herself. And then she gets married to a man who Islam says that he's now the authority. But when the woman looks at this man, he's not the authority. So the woman is frustrated because she's like, why should I give this guy, you know, why should I, you know, Place this guy as an authority over me, and he doesn't deserve to be an authority over me. He doesn't even deserve it. You know, so this is where a lot of Muslim women frustration come from. Because it's like, I was good by myself. I was managing my life, managing my affairs. And then, okay, I'm, I go into the whole marriage thing, and I'm cool with that. Let's get married. But then, Islam puts me into this role, this more subservient role... Which a woman, I don't think that she would mind having that role if she was married to a real man. <laughs> if she was married to a real man, a woman automatically finds her place in the relationship when she's married to a real man. Without a doubt. Facts. Facts. A woman will naturally find her place. Initially, at the very beginning of the relationship, you're going to bump heads. Because she's been so used to managing her own affairs. And then, you know, you got a man that comes in and is like, nah, babe, I, I got that. I'm going to handle that. No, let me handle that. Let me take care of that. And she's like, all right, well, she steps back and she sees that he handled it. She's like, oh, okay, I, I got a real dude here. I, I got a real dude here. All right, okay, cool. Handle that. A woman will normally, she will naturally find her place. Naturally. You don't have to control her and put her in her place by force. She will naturally, she is naturally domesticated. You guys have been playing with dolls and doll babies and houses. You've been playing house since y'all could talk and walk. You've been domesticated from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, being domesticated is part of your natural makeup, your natural disposition. It's a predisposition that you're born with. As Allah says in the Quran, "Awamayu nashshu fil hindiyati wa huwa fil khisami ghairu mubin." Can a woman who was raised in trinkets? Can a woman who was raised in trinkets? This is a woman. This is a woman who was raised with you know trinkets. We're buying them barrettes. We're buying. We're getting the ears pierced at six months. Raised in trinkets. Wa huwa fil khisami ghairu mubin. And even in a heated argument, she can barely articulate herself. Are you going to make this creature equal to God? As they used to say that the angels were the daughters of God, right? This was Arab, you know, culture, Arab tradition, pre-Islamic Arab tradition, that they said the angels were the daughters of God. And Allah saying that, are you going to, you know, liken God to this type of creature? 
So there's a predisposition. There's a predisposition there. And a woman will normally find her place, wherever that place is. I'm not saying that that place has to be subservient. I'm saying that when a woman is married to a real man, she will find her place, wherever that place is. <laughs> wherever that place is. So men don't have to force their women. There's a certain type of man who feels that he has to force, use force to push his wife into a particular role, subservient role. And we'll get into that. All right. And understand something. Um, the Prophet Sallallahu highlighted the vulnerability of women. Brothers, I want you to listen to this closely, man. Sisters, I want you to listen to this very closely because some of you think you're ready for marriage. But the reality is that you're not ready for marriage. If you're not ready to select someone that you are willing to relinquish this this dual this dualism that you are living, you're you're a single mother, right? If you're a single mother, then you have children, so you're playing the role of the mother and the father. So there is a duality there. You're playing the role of the mother and the father. And if you play any masculine role, you're going to take on masculine energy. Make no mistake about that. If you try to imitate a man, you are automatically going to adopt masculine energy. And this is why women who have masculine energy, this is why you can't find a man. You can't find a man because there's no good brothers out here. That's bull crap. There's tons of good brothers out here. You can't find a man because you have adapted masculine energy. And as a result of that, anytime you come into close vicinity with a real man, he's going to sense that masculine energy and it's a turn off to him. Understand facts. Wallahi, I kid you not. Yes, a lot of black women have that. They have masculine energy. And that's by design because you didn't start off like that. That's by design. Make no mistake about it. Men can... When a man walks into the room, he can take one look around the entire room. If he's a real man and he's, you know, sensitive to his energy, a man can walk in a room and he can point out the two or three men that would be a problem for him. The rest he ain't even worried about. It's not a problem. They, they don't even matter, right? They don't even matter. A man can walk in a room and he can automatically spot who's going to be his rival. His rival. Automatically. Why? Because men can read the energy of other men, which is why having a wali is very important. Men can read the energy of other men. So if men can read the other energy of other men, then when a woman adopts masculine energy because she's playing this masculine role, right? Don't you think that men can pick up on that too? When a man is close to a woman, I, like I can spot it, even me myself, and I'm, I'm very keen with the energy that is around me. I can spot it immediately. Immediately, I can walk into a room and I've, I've been into rooms and I can automatically spot which woman is going to be my problem. And nine times out of ten, those women are have embraced masculine energy, feminists, whatever you want to call them. I can, I can, I can almost spot them as soon as I walk in the room. I'm one of them people that I'm very perceptive about the energy that's around me. I can walk into a room and there's women in the room and I can point out the one or two women, because there's only one or two of them, that's going to be my problem. Why? Because they carry with them a masculine energy. The rest of the women in the room, a man is not threatened by a woman. That's not normal that a man is threatened. The energy of a woman threatens the energy of a man. That's not normal. 
But when a man walks into a room and he feels threatened by the energy of a certain woman, then you know that woman is carrying with them a dominant energy. Right? Men's plight is to be dominant. That's our nature, to be dominant. That's our nature. It's not woman's nature to be dominant. That's not your nature. That's not your nature to be dominant. Alright? So the Prophet ﷺ highlighted the vulnerability of women um, underneath the auspices of a man. In his farewell khutbah, in the last khutbah, right? In the last khutbah the Prophet ﷺ ever gave, he highlighted the vulnerability of women in marriage. He said, Fear Allah concerning your women. For indeed, these women are like captives under your authority. That is the role of a woman in an Islamic marriage. That is the role of a woman in relation to her husband. She is almost like a captive. Awanun is the, the plural of ani, an ani al-asir. A captive. And this is because the woman is murtabita bi man That the woman is connected to the service that she owes to the man that is over her. The husband. She is connected to her service that she has to do to her husband. His rights even take precedence over some of the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Did you know that? The right of the husband, Islamically, the right of the husband that is wajib, that is obligatory, takes precedence over the right of a law which is supererogatory, sunnah. Meaning, if a woman is fasting, a supererogatory fast, right? Not obligatory. Monday, Thursday, whatever, she's fasting. And a man comes home for lunch, and he wants to be intimate with his wife. And he calls her to the bed, she has to break her fast. Because the fast is supererogatory, satisfying her husband is obligatory. You understand? This is as it relates to his right in relation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, the woman, the Prophet sallallahu said, Fear Allah concerning your women. Because they, in their roles of being married, are like captives. Right? And she has to ask him before she fasts. Absolutely. She has to ask his permission to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in certain regards. Absolutely. To fast. She has to ask his permission. Absolutely. So, and this is why some of the scholars they used to say, um, that marriage is a type of servitude. Marriage is a type of servitude, so let every one of you look towards who you are going to place your daughter under their authority. Because marriage is, is a type of servitude. It is. It's a subservient role that the woman is put into. Right? And the man is subservient too, but to God. Not necessarily to his woman, but to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is why the Quran, when it speaks about the relationships between husband and wife, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala usually, usually ends the verse when he's talking about man and woman and rights and things like that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala usually, um, usually will end the verse with, a, with an attribute that denotes his authority and superiority over the man. 
right? Just as the man believes that his authority is over the woman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, in surah number 2, ayah 228. Listen to this ayah because this ayah is going to answer some questions for us later on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَّهُنَّ مِثْلُ الَّذِي عَلَيْهِنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَلِلْرِجَالِ عَلَيْهِنَّ دَرَجَةِ وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ Allah says that the women have certain rights that are for them similar to the rights that are against them. Meaning women have the same rights that men have in the relationship, in a marriage. The women have the same rights that the men have over them. وَلِلْرِجَالِ عَلَيْهِنَّ الدَّرَجَةِ And the man has a degree of authority over her because he has a degree of responsibility over her. And then Allah ends the verse, Wallahu Azizun Hakim. Allah is mighty and wise. Showing the man that although he gave the woman, he gave the man a degree of authority over the woman, ultimately he is the authority. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who al-Aziz. Allah is the ultimate authority over the man. So even though the man has authority over the woman to some degree, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the ultimate authority. You follow me? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, He said, do not prevent the female servants of Allah from attending the houses of Allah. But their homes are better for them. Listen how the Prophet structured his statement. He said, don't prevent the female servants of Allah. He didn't say, don't prevent your wives. Why? Why did the Prophet say, he didn't say, don't prevent your wives. He said, don't prevent the female servants of Allah from attending the houses of Allah. But their homes are better for them. Why did he structure his statement like that? He could have just said, don't prevent your wives from attending the masjids. Why did he structure his statement like that? No, because a woman is the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not the servant of her husband. He said, La tamna'u ima Allah, masajid Allah. Don't prevent the female servants of Allah. Meaning, don't look at them as your wives. Look at them as Allah's servants first. Although you have authority over them. He's saying, do not prevent them. You, the authority, don't prevent your wives from attending the houses. Don't prevent your female servants of Allah. They are your wives, but he addressed them as the servants of Allah because they belong to Allah, not to you. Showing you that their real authority is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not you. The Prophet sallallahu he mentioned in another, uh, another hadith, he said, La tadribu ima Allah. Do not hit the female servants of Allah. He didn't say don't hit your wives. He said don't hit the female servants of Allah. Bringing our, bringing the reality back home that although you are their husband and you have the authority over them, ultimately they belong to Allah. They don't belong to you. They are Allah's servants. So for the men who are in the habit of, you know, exerting this control and authority and superiority over their wives, understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the ultimate authority. You are not. Your authority is given to you on loan by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And your authority has limits as a husband. Your authority, your superiority, your control has limits. You don't have a limitless control over the woman to do as you want and say what you want and treat her any type of way that you want to. Understand that there are consequences to that. 
And we're going to get into some of that. So you can look at the way that the Prophet ﷺ structured the statement. He placed a woman, although under the auspices of their husbands, right? Although under the auspices of their husbands, they're still the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority, right? The Prophet ﷺ, he mentioned in a hadith collected in the Muslim of Imam Ahmed. He said, لا طاعة لمخلوق في معصية الخالق That there is no obedience to the creation in disobedience to the creator. Alright? A woman cannot obey her husband and in, at the same time obeying her husband, obey, disobeying the real authority. That the husband's obedience is an extension of her obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not independent of it. I'll say that again. A woman's obedience to her husband is an extension of her obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not in spite of it. Understand? He said there is no obedience to the creation and disobedience to the creator. Now, we, we, we're not dealing with the, the, the women who punch their husbands. Now, we're not dealing with that because that's a minority situation. And the Islamic ruling in the, in the, in the chapters of fiqh that the Islamic ruling is attached to the situation that is more prevalent, not the the the, scare, the the situation that is a rarity. The rarity in Islam has no ruling. You do not give a ruling to something that is rare. You give the ruling to the thing that is the that that is affecting the vast majority. All right, so. Now let's look at domestic violence. What is domestic violence? This is something that a lot of people don't really understand. So I need you guys to pay close attention. This is not one of them situations. If you're sitting in your living room, you got the TV on, turn the TV off. If you got kids around you, tell them to go in the room because this conversation is about to get real serious. Okay. Domestic violence. Let's talk about it. I'm going to get into that, Shems. Don't worry about it. We're going to get into all of that. All right? So, domestic violence is when a spouse, pay attention, take notes if you can. Domestic violence is when a spouse physically, verbally, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, financially, and mentally or psychologically abuses their partner by exerting control or power over them. I'll say it again. Seven categories, all right? Domestic violence is when a spouse physically, verbally, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, financially, mentally, or psychologically abuses their partner by exerting control and power over them. So as you can see, domestic violence has nothing to do with, uh, it's not about the physical beating of a man beating his wife. Understand? So the seven things that I just mentioned are just a means, the vehicle, that's it, to the end. It is a means to an end, and the end is control. Understand? If it's physical, mental, psychological, financial, sexual, spiritual, right? It's not about the physical abuse. Stop thinking 
because you might be after this is over with. I'm sure some of you gonna you know go back and reevaluate your situations, or reevaluate, help some other people reevaluate their situations because you might be in a domestically abusive situation and don't even realize it. Because you're thinking that it's only when a man put his hands on you that you're being <laughs> that you're being domestically abused. No, sorry. I, I mean, it could even be with finances. It could even be with finances. It could be with religion. You, how do you use religion to oppress someone? We're gonna get there. Stay with me. All right. So the seven things that I mentioned are just a means. They're just a vehicle to get to the end goal, and the end goal is control. Power and control. Understand? 95%, 95% of the reported domestic violence cases are men abusing women. 95% of the domestic violence reported cases are men abusing women, while only 5% are women against men. So that kind of that whole argument of what about sisters who abuse their husbands that that's a, that's nadir right al the islamic ruling is attached to what is more prevalent and that which is a rarity has no ruling there's no ruling because it's a rarity it doesn't really occur it doesn't really occur. This is a qa'ida, fiqhiyya. These are fit principles, maxims, all right? Part of our religion. We can't just, you know, ignore those. All right? All right, so let's get into it. Most domestic abusers have a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, bipolar syndrome that they suffer from. It's the dualism. Because they come off as the nicest people. When they're out in public, they're the nicest people. You see them with their children, you're like, wow, mashallah. But when they get home, they become a completely different person. They become a completely different person. Brothers, I want you to pay attention because I'm talking to you. I'm talking to us as brothers. We got to learn how to have some emotional stability in our lives. But we have this bipolar, manic, depressive syndrome, right? Because of their public and private behaviors, right? The public and private behaviors, this dualism that they suffer from. So let me just give you, I'm gonna, we're going to dive a little deeper here. I want you to pay attention. Because a lot of the brothers that come from or are part of the Salafi, the extreme Salafi community. All right, I'm about to get, I'm about to real talk right here. All right, they are the greatest perpetrators of this type of behavior. As a matter of fact, the Salafi community, the extreme Salafi community itself represents, <laughs> represents this type of behavior. And it trickles over into the mainstream communities because a lot of the brothers in the Salafi community are no longer looking for those sisters who are Salafi, right? Because so many of them, they filter these sisters. They, it's like a, 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 a revolving door with a lot of the sisters in the community. Why? Because they don't expand their communities. They don't expand their community. They stay in a tight-knit circle, right? They don't go to any other masses. They don't listen to any other speakers. They don't take from nobody else. 
right? All of this I don't take from him, and we, we rotate between these three, four, five Salafi masjids in one city, so basically it's a revolving door. So when the divorce rates are high in those communities, right, I, I mean, can they hate me any more than they already hate me? <laughs> Is it even possible to hate me any more than you hate me? <laughs> like, so they live in very small, small, close-knit communities. So that means if they have, and, and without a doubt, the Salafi community has very high rates of divorce. So if they have high rates of divorce, I want you guys to do the math here. If the Salafi community has high rates of divorce, which they do, Right, because there's no system in place. The men can, it's like a boys club. The men can kind of just do them and the women just, you know, are just passed around. The women are just passed around and the sisters who've been, listen, I've been a part of those communities from the very beginning of my Islam. There's nothing that you can tell me about that those communities that I don't know. And I have an experience firsthand myself. Okay? So, I'm not speaking from a place where some information I read or something somebody told me. All right? I used to be a part of these communities that I know firsthand how they function. All right? So a lot of their a lot of the divorce rates are very high in those communities, right? Because of a lot of the things that we're mentioning here, this whole control and obey your husband, sister, you know, this type of mentality. And so they have very little tolerance for women who can think for themselves. Right? They have very little, they have very low tolerance for women who can think outside of the box that they try to put them in. When they put you in this box, they put, you know, all black, you got to go to this masjid, you got to take from these particular scholars, these particular um, students of knowledge. That's a box. They just put you in a box. And, and some people, you know, that's their rightful place. They deserve to be in a box. Which is why I don't warn people against going to their communities. Because for some people, they might need to be in those communities. And they actually serve a purpose. <laughs> they actually do serve an actual purpose, to b believe it or not. Some people say, oh, warn against them. Don't send nobody up to the communities. Nah, no, don't warn against them. Because there's some people that need to be there. <laughs> Stay the hell away from the main body of the rest of the Muslims. Go, go and enjoy yourself. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So some people actually need to be there. But when you have high rates of divorce amongst them and they don't expand, they get like one new Shahada every month or something like that. I mean, and, and they and they, you know, Salafis in those communities, they have a very short shelf life. They cater to a certain type of people, the people coming home from jail, people who are down and, you know, down on their luck, people who, you know, just hit rock bottom in life and just really looking for something to lift them up, pick them up. You understand what I'm saying? And then once these people get married, start having children, start having real life problems, the information that is being disseminated in the Salafi community no longer works for them. So they got to move somewhere else. So they only have like a, a, a two to maybe five year shelf life as a Salafi. And then it's like you move on, right? You move on to other things because the information that they're, I mean, like I, I took the imam position in 2010, at UMM, they have been giving chutbahs and talking about me since 2009. And it's 2017, and they just recently, just two weeks ago, gave a chutbah about me again. It's just like, you keep talking about the same thing. Like, we're talking about almost 10 years. It's 2017. You've been talking about this guy, Shadid Muhammad, since 2009. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? It's like, it's, I, I mean, okay, make your point and keep it moving, but people year after year after year they're like alright this is not really working for me anymore 
this is not really working for me anymore. And then you got to move on to somewhere else. But if they don't expand their communities, then that means that the sisters that are divorced, the high divorce rate, right? What what happens to those sisters? Where are they going to get married? Because the sisters are not going outside of the Salafi community to get married. So what do they do? These sisters are just passed around, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's a revolving door with marriage and divorce in their communities. I'm, I'm, I'm Facts, I'm telling you straight up. So let's look at the uh, diagnostic criteria for or diagnosis for the dom domestic abuser. Pay attention to this. And watch how we connect these dots. Number one, antisocial personality disorder. Antisocial personality disorder. This is the type of brother that is deceitful, lying, right? And he does everything so that he's like a, a moving target. He's a moving target. He, you can never actually put your finger on this person. Antisocial personality disorder. This person's very deceitful, lies, you know, maneuvers, do everything that they can possibly do so that you can never put your finger on it, right? All right. Yes, they are psychologically damaged. Yes, they are. All right. The second one is borderline personality disorder, BPD. Right. These are people that are unstable. They have very intense interpersonal relationships. These are the type of people who you can know them for, for 20 years. And then once they adopt the Salafi methodology, they'll boycott you. They'll completely cut you off. And they will develop friendships with people that they just met. Over the friendships of people that they went to high school with, they went to junior high with, you know, you play video games in each other's houses. They have borderline personality disorder. Nothing stable about their personality. They can't maintain friendships. Think about the Salafi community and how many imams and students of knowledge that they have run through themselves. The same people that they prop up at one moment, they, they put in their names on flyers and, and then the next moment, they don't, they, they don't even mess with them anymore. They don't rock out with them like that anymore. And I mean, like, they run through students of knowledge. You know, you got a couple that, you know, the, the usual suspects that remain around for a while. <laughs> they, they stay around for a little bit, right? They have their stake in that, and they're not really going anywhere. But the others, they kind of just, it's a revolving door for them as well. It's a revolving door for them, even, even with a lot of their leadership. Nothing stable about it. One minute, they're on a flyer, on a, you know, on the platform with this person, and the next minute, they warn it against them. That's, that is not normal behavior. That is, that is not normal behavior. Alright, the last one is narcissistic personality disorder. This is the grandiose sense of self-importance. I'm important. Obey your husband, sister. Right? Alright? So, let's go back to the antisocial. Turn the air on, please. The antisocial. So many will use Islam to isolate. Sisters, pay attention. When a brother starts to isolate you, isolate you from your family, from your friends, from your community, then understand that you are being positioned to eventually be controlled. All right. So the antisocial behavior is many will use Islam to isolate the woman from her family. will use Islam to isolate you from your family. They'll tell you your family are disbelievers, right? Your family are kufar. You need to stay away from them. 
They'll tell you that your family, if they are Muslims and they're disobedient Muslims, they're, they're astray. Stay away from them. Your family is astray. Your family is this. I mean, this happens even with brothers and sisters. Like, they haven't attended the Eid with one another. Like, just think that you, and I'm, I have a lot of children. So I can only imagine, like, we've go, we go to the Eid every year, twice a year together as a family. And to have these same children who grew up under, in my household get to the point where they're like 19, 20 years old and, and adopt this particular approach to Islam and then turn around and tell me that I am a deviant and that they can't attend the Jumar with their own father and their mother. I mean, like, as a parent, I, I would, like, I can't even say, you know, in public for my own personal what I would do to my own kid if that was the case. But, I mean, can you imagine as a parent can you imagine as a parent that your child tell, grows up and tells you, uh, I can't go to Jumar with you no more because the masjid that we grew up in is astray. And, you know, <laughs> it's like you've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. And, and that's not to say that this is the danger because some of this stuff is actually true. It's actually true, but it's being used for the wrong reasons. And that's the danger. So antisocial behavior, they'll isolate you from your fr your friends. They'll tell you your friends are kufar. Or your friends are, you know, disobedient. Look at her. She don't cover. They'll come up with all these different reasons for you to start Xing off all your friends off your list. Be aware of that. Any man that comes into your life and tries to control who you hang with, control, you know, to give you advice and to say, you know, I would advise you, or I'm very uncomfortable with you. That's a husband appealing to you, appealing to your ability to use your religious lens, right? And look through, the, look at the world through the lens of your religion. That's your husband appealing to you. That's not your husband superimposing on you and forcing you. To see it his way and to do it his way and to accept nothing less than that. Understand? There's a difference between the two. There's a difference between a husband saying to his wife, you know, sis, um, babe, she doesn't really cover. And, you know, I don't want you, you know, around sisters like that. And then other people tend to think that you kind of get down like that. You know, you are, you know, around the people that you are associated with. That you, you do share in some of that. So I would advise you. This is just my advice. I would advise you that, you know, if you guys go out, then you try to find an alternative because you don't want to separate them. That, you know, when you guys go out, why don't you just ask her to put on an overgarment? Why don't you just, you know, advise her or things like that? You're trying to, you know, appeal to your wife's ability to use her, her religion, right? And not to just accept the situation as it is. This opposed to, um, I don't want you hanging out with her no more. You can't hang out with her no more. Why? That's my friend. Well... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, be with those who are truthful. The Prophet وسلم, said, here, here, here. So you're going to go against the Quran and the Sunnah? You're going to go against the Quran and the Sunnah? Right? These are how the arguments go. Because we're going to use Islam to abuse you. Not use Islam to, to build you, to empower you, to strengthen you. We're going to use Islam to put you in a box and isolate you from your friends, isolate you from your family. All right? Isolate you from your masjid. You know, you've been attending this masjid all your life. He married you because of some good qualities that you have that you developed from going to this masjid. And then he turns around and then he removes you from that masjid. He uproots you from this particular masjid and takes you to a completely different place that you don't have any knowledge about. Introducing you to all of these sisters. And I mean, it's, it's yo, it's crazy. Crazy. All right.
Or in some cases, the, the brother may tell you he don't want you hanging with this particular sister because he don't like her husband. <laughs> I've had that happen to me. <laughs> It's funny, it's like almost like we're in, we're in preschool, like this is like pre-K, right? So you tell your wife not to speak to my wife anymore because you don't like me, or because you believe I'm a deviant. And you've never actually come to me and had a conversation about anything. You just adopted whatever, you know, you opened your brain, and whatever they dumped inside of there, you, you took that. <laughs> and then you tell your wife not to talk to my wife anymore, and they grew up together. They lived on the same street, they grew up together. <laughs> they went to high school together. And now all of a sudden, because you have a problem with me, you don't want your wife to give this wife. Basically, this is what... No, listen. This is crazy. So, the danger is that some of this stuff could be legitimate, Islamically. It could be legitimate. But you don't know the person's angle. You don't know what their angle is. And their angle, if the person is a domestic abuser, their angle is to isolate you. Put you on an island all by yourself. So when the abuse starts, you have no one to defend you. You have no one to complain to. You have no one, right? Because we attach shame with marital problems. That's dangerous. So I don't want to go to the imam and tell the imam about the, you know, the, the, you know, the marital problems I'm having because I don't want to expose my husband. But he's abusing you. Right. So uh, the danger is that some of this stuff might be legitimate Islamically. You, you might need to be told not to pray at this masjid. You might need to be told don't put, hang with this particular person. Right. You, th those things might be legitimate, but you don't know what the person's angle is. And that's the danger when we use truth, you know, to justify falsehood. As the Khawarij, they used to bust in the masjid while Ali was giving the khutbah, right? During the time of uh, Khalifa, Ali, he's on the minbar giving the khutbah, on Jumu'ah. And the Khawarij, this deviant group, would walk into the masjid, bust into the masjid, because they had no respect for Islam, they had no respect for the Muslims. They, I mean, similar to these individuals, right? They bust into the masjid while Ali is giving the khutbah, and they shout at the top of their lungs, La hukma illa lillah, la hukma illa lillah. There's no judge except Allah's judgment. There's no judge except Allah's judgment. Ali anhu said a word that was so profound. He said, Kalimatul haq urid bihabatun. This is a true statement that there's no judge except Allah. God is the only judge, but they only desire by that statement falsehood. They only desire by a falsehood. So they're using truth to justify falsehood. And that's a dangerous individual. And when a person has a disease in their hearts, that's exactly what they'll do. They'll sit in the masjid, they'll sit at lectures, and they'll absorb all of these tidbits of information, and they'll manipulate that and co-op the religion for their own personal, right? For their own personal. Make no, make no mistake about that. All right. Um, narcissistic personality disorder using Islamic texts that places his needs over the needs of his wife. You interpret the texts that give the man his rights. You interpret those texts as making your rights more important than the rights of the woman. Please tell me in Islam, even though the man has a degree of haq over his wife, the rights of the woman in comparison to the rights over the man Islamically. Like you, you are you serious? You're going to use Islamic texts 
to make your rights as the husband more important than the rights of the woman. And this is a classic case of, you know, you get into an argument, sister corners you, and then you say, just obey your husband. I'm not going into all of that. Obey your husband, sister. Right? Because now I can shut the argument down using obey your husband. So I don't have to deal with it, right? Sister and husband get into an argument over niqab. He wants you to wear niqab. You say, I don't see niqab to be obligatory. I've studied the text. I've studied the issues myself. And I don't see the niqab to be obligatory. And he says, well, I'm not going into all of that with you. Just obey your husband. Put the niqab on. You understand what I'm saying? Like, we're, we're using... So, why are our women learning Islam if when we get into an argument, if they get into an argument with us in the home, the first thing that we do is, is shut them down by saying, just obey your husband. Then what is the woman learning for? If the, if the woman in Islam is not able to learn her deen and then that learning be respected in the home, in her, amongst her husband and, and amongst other family members, then why is she learning Islam? Why are we having female scholars if we could just throw, obey your husband? <laughs> if you could just throw, obey your husband, you pull out the obey your husband card, basically. Obey your husband. Then why is the woman learning? Because every time she approaches you with something that you disagree with, you shut it down by saying, obey. yes, it is very dismissive. Very dismissive. Because it means what you're saying doesn't matter. My right of being obeyed supersedes your right to be heard. Alright? I'll say that again. My right as a husband to be obeyed supersedes your right to be heard as a woman, as a wife in the marriage. You're already in a role. Right? You're already as a wife in a role. You're already in this little box where you got to be obedient to this man. And you got to give this man his rights. You're already in a box. And then he puts you in an even further box because now you don't even have a voice even in your own box. Like she's a child, absolutely. And the Prophet Wasallam, he gave virtue to the way a man caters to his wife, not the way that a man caters to himself. The Prophet Wasallam said, خيركم 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 The best of you are those that are best to their wives, and I am the best of you to my wives. I am the best of you to my wives. Virtue in Islam is given to the way that a man treats his family. The Prophet didn't say the best of men is the man that go out, fight jihad, and die in the cause of Allah. He said the best of men is those who are best to their families, the best to their wives. And I am the best of you to my wives. I treat my wives better than any of you men treat your wives. Understand? The rights of the wife supersede the rights of the man. So, now let's talk about can a man force his wife to have sexual relations with him? <clears throat> can a man force his wife to have sexual relations with him? Let's deal with this. Because sometimes <clears throat> a woman doesn't want to be. Like, as we said before, that men, our sexuality is not attached to our emotions. We could be mad, upset, or whatever, but we'll never deny sex. Women, on the other hand, your sexuality is connected to your emotions. If you're not in a mood emotionally, you don't want to have sex. If there was a death in the family, like you, you don't want, you know what I mean? Like you don't want to have sex. A man could just come from a janaza and say, okay, can we go home real quick and, and, and have sex? Because our emotions is not connected to our sexuality, but a woman's is. And Islam does recognize that. So let's just say, husband, 
shouts at his wife, yells at his wife, beats his wife, or gets, you know, caught cheating on his wife or whatever the case may be. Does a wife have to unequivocally, you know, unrestrictedly obey her husband when it comes to sexual relations? Do they have, do, does a woman, if a man, because uh, here's another dismissive hadith that we'll use. We'll use another hadith to dismiss the woman's emotions, right? The Prophet sallallahu authentic hadith, the Prophet sallallahu said, إِذَا دَعَى الرَّجُلْ إِمْرَأَتَهُ إِلَى فِرَاشِهِ فَأَبَتْ غَدْبَانٍ فَأَبَتْ فَبَاتَتْ غَدْبَانٍ عَلَيْهَا لَعْنَتْهَا الْمَلَائِكَةِ حَتَّى تُسْبِحْ Listen to this very closely. Pay attention. Because we don't need to have this discussion no more. I want you to be upon clarity. Right? I want you to be upon clarity when this discussion is over with. Alright? We don't ever have to speculate anymore. Pay attention. The Prophet ﷺ, he said that if a man calls his wife to the bed, meaning to have sexual relations with him, and she refuses, she refuses. These are general terms. He calls his wife to the bed. She refuses. And then he goes to sleep angry with her. Then the angels will curse her until the morning. That's the hadith. So a man could shout at his wife, yell at her, demean her, degrade her, belittle her, beat her, do whatever he want to do to her. And then he can still call her to the bed and she still has to obey him. Is that what Islam is saying? Is that what the Prophet is saying here? Is what I'm asking is, is this hadith unrestricted? Is this hadith unrestricted? Meaning, no matter what the case is, if a man calls his wife to the bed, she has to obey him. Is that unrestricted? No. It's not unrestricted. It is restricted. Because if a man calls his wife to the bed to do something haram, right? To have sex with her and her anal is haram. So if a man is calling his wife to the bed to have sex with her and her anal, she has a right to deny him. If a man is calling his wife to the bed to have sex with her, all right, um, while she is on her menstrual, right, she is experiencing her menstrual cycle, and he calls her to the bed, does she have to obey him? No. So the hadith is restricted. Don't say this is unrestricted. If any time a man calls his wife to the bed, she has to respond. La wallahi. No. There are times we have to use this text in, com in, 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 in conjunction with other texts. Alright? This is not by itself. Alright? I just gave you two instances where if a man called his wife to the bed to be intimate with her, she is allowed to deny him. Alright? If he wants to have sex with her in a manner that is haram. No. Okay? Now let's go back Let's, okay, so I gave you two situations. What about if the man, you know, is um, caught cheating? She caught him cheating or she knows that he was with another woman or whatever the case may be, right? And he calls her to the bed. What if the man beat her and then tells her, I want to have sex with you? Can he do that as well? What if a man was promised his wife that he would take care of certain things when he married her. <laughs> what if the man promised the wife that he would take care of certain things when he married her and those things are not taken care of and now she's affected emotionally. She cannot be intimate with him. She does not have those feelings for him. Can she deny him? 
Yes. Did I not quote to you an ayat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that the woman has the same rights as the man? The woman has the same rights as the man. So if a woman stipulated in the marriage that the, the, the man take care of certain things, and those men, that man did not fulfill those obligations, and in turn has affected that woman in a way where she cannot be intimate with him. Maybe the mahar. Maybe whatever stipulation she put in the marriage contract. Maybe she put in the marriage contract that, you know, I don't want to be in polygyny. I don't want to be a second wife. She can't tell him he can't take another wife. But what she can say is, I don't want to be in polygyny. And then he goes and secretly marries another woman. And then he comes home and then he says, I want to be intimate with you. Does she have a right to deny him? Allah says, and the women have similar rights to the rights of the men over them. They have the same rights. Understand, don't let these brothers manipulate you. Don't let these brothers play with the religion and manipulate you. Using the hadith that if the man calls a woman to the bed and she doesn't respond. If she doesn't respond in a, because, of matters that are Ill, because of matters that are not legitimate. Meaning if a woman just refuses to give him sexual relations. She just refuses for whatever, for, for her own personal reasons. Has no legitimacy Islamically. Has no legitimacy Islamically. But if she has an le Islamic legitimate reason to deny him, yes, she can deny him. Alright? The scholars, they say, There's something in Islam called nushus. Does anyone know what this means? Does anyone know what the word nushus means? Nushus means marital discord. Marital discord. And marital discord can be on the part of the husband and it could be on the part of the of, of the wife. So if the husband is creating new shoes, the husband is creating marital discord. He's not giving her her rights, meaning he's not paying any of the bills. You know, he's lying to her. He's cheating on her, right? And he calls her to the bed. <laughs> Does she have to respond? No, she does not have to respond. If he is engaging in matters that is haram, he's getting high, and he calls her to the bed, does she have to respond? No, she does not have to respond. Because now he is considered gnashes. He's considered creating marital discord. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, in surah number 4, ayah 58, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تُؤَدُّوا الْأَمَانَةِ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهَا Allah commands you, commands you to return the trust to their rightful people. Return the trust to their rightful people. So if you have a right that you owe to your wife, then you have to give her her haq first. You cannot, den you cannot demand your haq before you give this woman her haq. La wallahi, Islam does never condone that. When does Islam ever condone that? Go through the books of fit, go through the books of, of hadith and tell me when does Islam ever condone that? How are you asking for your haq and you haven't given the woman her haq? How? You asking for your haq and you not giving the woman her haq. You're not giving the woman her right. How? Allah says that indeed Allah commands you to return the trust to their rightful people. 
If this woman has a right over you, you give her her right. You can't demand that she have sexual relations with you and you denying her her hock. You're not paying any of the bills. You're going out marrying second lives and you, you can't afford it. You ain't taking care of business in your first house. And then you come home talking about you, it's your right to have sexual relations. It's not your right. You forfeited that right. You forfeited that right, brother. Sorry. It's called new shoes. You forfeited that right. And Allah says, and give the rights back to the people that they are due to. Your wife has a hawk over you. You got to give her a hawk before you can demand your hawk. Are you kidding me? So if the man is oppressing her, if the man is engaging in matters that are haram, then she has a right to deny him sexual relations and should not be threatened. Should not be threatened with the hadith that if he does, if she doesn't, if she refuses, then, you know, then the, um, then, you know, uh, the angels are going to curse her into the morning. Now, the angels might actually make dua for her until the morning. The angels might be making dua for her until the morning. You was just out with another woman that she never even knew about. And then you come home talking about, can we have sexual relations? No. And then you're going to use the hadith to say, oh, the angels are going to curse her. Nah, the angels might be making dua for her into the morning. There's no obedience to the creation the creation and disobedience to the creator. Nah. But what is better for her, instead of getting into this issue, is for her to just leave the situation completely instead of just denying him this. Just leave the situation completely. As Fatima bin Tuqais, she went to the Prophet وسلم, and she said, Ya Rasulullah, inni la u'ibu thabit fi dinihi wa la fi khuluqihi. Lakinni la utiquhu bughdan. She said, O Messenger of Allah, I don't have any problem with thabit as it relates to his character, as it relates to his deen, but I cannot stomach him. I can't stomach him. La utiquhu bughdan. I hate to look at him. And the Prophet وسلم, what did he say? He said, can you give him back what he gave you as a dowry? She said, I can give him back what he gave me as a dowry. What's Ziyad and more? I just went out of this situation. The Prophet ﷺ went to Thabit and told him to accept your garden back and to release her from this marriage. Understand? So the better thing, as she said, I couldn't stand being in this marriage with him. I can't even look at him. She mentioned in another narration that it, when I see him in a crowd of men, I have no desire. I am ashamed. I am embarrassed to call this person my husband. That's how much she disliked him. And she wanted out. So the better thing is that if you can't, you know what I'm saying, if you can't, be in the situation with this person. Don't play the game where I'm not going to have sexual relations with you. I'm not going to. Nah, man. Nah, I'm not playing that game with you, man. I'm out. <laughs> I'm not sitting here playing this, you know, this semantics. Am I right? You're right. I ain't. I'm, I'm not getting into all of that stuff. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. All right. So understand that. So, you know. A man cannot use the hadith that if a man calls his wife to the bed, that she has to obey. Under any circumstance, she has to obey. Or is that conditional? Is that conditional? Is there, is there, are there some circumstances that she might be excused for and denying him? Or is that just absolute emphatic? It's not emphatic. Stop letting ignorant brothers teach you your religion. Boy ain't sat in a class day in his life. Boy ain't sat in a class day in his life, man. 
you go sit in a lecture with your coffee and you're sitting in the back kicking it and you know it becomes a boys club you're just hanging out and you you know whatever tidbits of information you manage to gather from that gathering then you go and you manipulate it and whatever the case may be and then when a woman goes back and does research you find out that this dude don't even know what the hell he's talking about you don't even know what you're talking about dude It might not even, Gareth, it might not even be tahdif. It ain't even distortion of the text. This is a reinterpretation of the text. They got their own religion going, man. How is this promoting destruction of households? Households are already destroyed, brother. What are you talking about? Where have you been? <laughs> what rock are you climbing from underneath? Households are already dysfunctional from top to bottom. Hence the fact I'm sitting here talking about it. Households are already destroyed. <laughs> you speaking about as, as, as if you're speaking about the destruction of man, please miss me with that. The only reason why I'm even giving this lecture is because the households are already destroyed. What are you talking about? <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> Nah, we can't sit around waiting for the masses to clean it up. That's that's not gonna happen. <laughs> nah, this is a, a venti. It's a little bit more left than there. <laughs> so the better thing to do is to just leave the situation completely and not get into the whole. Well, I don't want to be intimate with you. She said, right? <laughs> Usman must be from Sudan. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like maybe just popped out of nowhere. You know, I mean, like. Understand something, man. If you don't have a pulse on, you know, the, the social climate and what's going on, man, please stay in your lane, man. You know, please stay in your lane, man. I, I, I'm, I'm aware. I got a pulse on. I got a pulse on this. My finger been on the pulse from day one, man. All right. Um, so what is better as Fatima bin Tukais? She exited the situation altogether. She didn't stay and say, you know, uh, you know, and, you know, sister sent me an email this morning talking about the, the same thing. Like, if you're not attracted to someone and you can't stand being around this person, you, you got to be honest with yourself. This ain't this ain't working for me. You know, what I mean, like you can't, you know, you can't just say, you know, I'm going to stay and I'm I'm going to try to get my I'm going to try to get his brother his rights. No, nah, she said, I, I can't stand to look at him. I can't stand to look at him. I went out of this situation. Alright, and that's the better thing to do. But the Prophet Wasallam, he explained that sexual relations and intimacy should not be without compassion of the hearts and mercy. Right? Look at the verses that deal with sexual relations. How men yell and shout and scream and you know do all of these things to his wife and then turn around and say, let's be, you know. Let's let's let let's be intimate. How are we gonna be intimate? All of the components that would create an intimate situation are not even here. Look at all of the ayats in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about sexual relations. All of those ayats deal with compassion and mercy and, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even tells, you know, the man to, to anfusikum, like to, you know, do some, you know, uh, foreplay, you know, even before you actually engage in the, in, in the act of sexual relations, right? It, there has to be, you know, there has to be intimacy, intimacy of, of the hearts. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasizes this. But listen to this hadith. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, hadith is in Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim. 
Listen to this hadith. The Prophet wasallam said, يَعْمِدُوا أَحَدُكُمْ فَلْيَجْلِدْ إِمْرَأَتُهُ جِلْدِ الْعَبْدِ فَلَعَلَّهُ يُضَاجِعُهَا مِنْ آخِرِ يَوْمِهَا وَفِي رِوَايَةٍ قَالَ جِلْدِ الْفَحْلِ The Prophet wasallam. listen to this. This speaks to my point even further. The Prophet wasallam said, perhaps one of you goes to his wife and beats her like an owner would beat his slave. And another narration, he said, like a man would beat his ba'ir, would beat his camel. Right? One of you goes to your wife and you beat your wife like an owner beats his slave or like a man beats his camel. He said, and then perhaps you want to go and be intimate with her at the end of the day. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying, how? How? How could you do that? Listen to what Shaykh Uthaymeen Rahimullah Ta'ala said. Let me, let me give you some, some hardcore Salafi information. All right? Because people always say, well, who said that? What scholar said that? Like, as if, you know, the scholar validates it. If the Prophet Wasallam said it, that's sufficient. Scholar is just the icing on the cake. <laughs> but we don't want to say, what did the Prophet Wasallam say? We said, what Shaykh said that? <laughs> that's how conditioned we have been. That is how conditioned we are what scholar said that? What scholar preceded him in that? I don't need a scholar to precede me in something if the Prophet already preceded me in it. You kidding me? What scholar preceded me in that? The Messenger of Allah said it. What are you talking about? What scholar preceded him in that? <laughs> and we buy into this stuff. You know, well, no scholar said that, so that must be coming from himself. You gotta, you gotta be kidding me. You gotta be kidding me. Alright, so listen to what Shaykh Uthaymeen Rahimahullah Ta'ala said. He said in his explanation of this hadith, he said, وَلَا يُلِيكُ بِحَالًا مِنَ الْأَحْوَالِ أَنْ يَجْمَعَ الْإِنسَانِ بَيْنَ النَّقِيضَيْنِ يَضْرِبُ الْمَرْأَ وَالْضَرْبَ الْفَحَلِ ثُمَّ يُضَاجِعُهَا فِي آخِرِ الْيَوْمِ Shaykh Uthaymeen Rahimahullah Ta'ala said that it is not, it is not appropriate. It is not appropriate. In any circumstance, it is not. He didn't say it's not permissible. He said it's not even fathomable under any circumstance. It's not even fathomable. He didn't say it's not permissible because this is something that you can't even fathom in order for you to give it an Islamic ruling to be permissible or impermissible. He said, La yaliku. It is not even fathomable. It's not even appropriate to even consider under any circumstance that a man would combine two opposites. That he would strike his wife like a man would strike a camel. Or like a man would strike his slave. And as if there is no connection between him and her. Right? It's as if there's no ilaqa. There's no connection between him and her. And then turn around at the end of the day and be intimate with her. It's not even fathomable that a man can do that. Because these are two naqidain. These are two opposites. It's oxymoronic. To think that you would beat a woman like a man would beat his, you know, a man would beat his 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 bayir, or a man would beat his camel, or like a slave owner would beat his slave 
as if there is no connection between you and the woman. Like you don't even know her. You beat this woman like it's no connection. Like she's a complete stranger. And then turn around at the end of the day and have sexual relations with her. Shaykh Uthaymeen said, How could a man even do something? How could he beat his wife and then turn around and, and have sex with her? He said, And this is why the Prophet was amazed. Amazed. Like, he said, He said, This is not even appropriate behavior of someone who has sound mind, let alone someone who is a believer. Let alone someone who say they believe in Allah. Let alone somebody who says they believe in Allah. In the last day. This is not even the behavior of someone with sound mind. Let alone somebody who believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you understand. So you know you have brothers who will beat their wives physically or emotionally abuse them. And then turn around and say let's have sex. And then when she's scarred. She can't bring herself to be intimate with you. Then we turn around and spiritually. So we physically abuse them. Emotionally abuse them. And then we... Ask them to have sex, right? And then when they refuse, then we spiritually abuse them. We turn around and we'll use the text saying that the, the angels are going to curse you into the morning. It's like, you have got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. And it goes on every day. Every day. Every day. And it becomes the entire Islamic community's responsibility to ensure the safety of those who are vulnerable in our community. Women are vulnerable in our communities. Women are vulnerable in our communities. The Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith that was collected in the Muslim of Imam Ahmed. He said, Allahumma inni uharriju haqq al-da'ifayn al-yateen wal-mar'a. He said, O oh Allah, I have issued a severe warning against the two categories, the two categories of weak people in my community. And that is the yatim, the orphan, and the woman. The two categories of vulnerable people in our communities are the orphans and the women. He said, and I have issued a warning. This is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saying, إني إني Oh Allah, I issue a warning in front of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala for those who oppress the two vulnerable people, the two vulnerable categories of people in our community, and that is Al-Yatim, the orphan, and the woman. You understand? So, Women in the community are, you know, are vulnerable, you know. And so the last thing I want to mention is a hadith that took place um, in the community of the Prophet Sallallahu And I want, to, I want to show you how the community of the Prophet Sallallahu stood up to domestic violence. Domestic violence against women. And where we are failing in, in this regard. Where we're failing at this. All right. So, the hadith of Tamima bintu Wahab. This was a woman. Um, this was a woman during the time of the Prophet ﷺ who was abused, was hit 
by her husband. All right. The Prophet um, on the authority of um, or the scholars, they say that, you know, during the time of the Prophet wasallam, that women in the community, um, they were always protected in the community of the Prophet wasallam. The Prophet wasallam, made a vow that anyone that infringes on the rights of the weak in his community, and that was the woman and the orphan, that he made a promise before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to extract retribution against those who did that. Meaning there was zero tolerance in the community of the Prophet ﷺ for atrocities against women and against orphans. Understand? There was zero tolerance. As a matter of fact, the Prophet ﷺ, he mentioned in another hadith, Hal saruna wa illa That are you even aided and assisted and provided for except because of the weak that is in your community? The weak, these are, these are the, the, the only reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues to aid our communities and to provide for our communities is because of the weak that are in our communities. And we see weakness as an opportunity to take advantage. And the Prophet wasallam swore to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that made an oath that anyone who takes advantage of the weak that was in this community, he would extract retribution. So the weaker that a person is, understand this sisters and brothers, the weaker that a person is, the more concentration Allah will give to his or her circumstance. Understand? The weaker you are in the situation, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will rush to aid your, your, your circumstance. Right? And even during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that during its community in the community of the Prophet Wasallam, that when women were subjected to physical abuse or any other type of abuse, they turned to the place, the one place where they knew that they would get help and assistance from, and that was the house of the Prophet Wasallam. So this hadith that I'm talking about is collected in Sahih al-Bukhari on the authority of Ikrimah. A companion by the name of Rifa'a, he divorced his wife for the third time. So another companion married his ex-wife, Abdurrahman ibn Zubair, Abdurrahman ibn Zubair al-Quradi. He married Rifa'a's ex-wife. Call it Aisha, and Aisha is narrating, the, you know, as it happened. She came to this woman, Tamima. She came to Aisha, and she had on a green jilbab. She had on a green garment. Showing you this whole idea of wearing black and the Sahabiyat wore black. Man, miss me with all that. Ibn Battal, in his explanation of this hadith, he said, With thiyab al-khudr, he said, and green is the color of the people of Jannah, and that is sufficient as a virtue for this woman to have on green. This whole idea where you gotta wear black and it's haram to wear any other color. Man, miss me with all of that, man. There's no concrete text that, that, that says that. And we buy into this stuff, man, with no delil. Brothers and sisters, stop buying into the only way that we avoid falling into cult behavior again is when we educate ourselves to our religion 
educate yourself to your religion, man. Stop letting somebody come by because they speak a little Arabic, because they went here to study, and then come and then superimpose on us their interpretation of Islam. Seek knowledge. This hadith is right here in Sahih al-Bukhari. It's been here the whole time. Aisha said that, She came to me and she had on a green overgarment. فَشَكَتْ إِلَيْهَا وَأَرَتْهَا خُضْرَةً بِجِلْدِهَا And when she came to Aisha عنها, complaining about her husband's abuse of her, she showed Aisha a green mark on her arm and Aisha, she said, فَلَمَّا جَاءَ لَمَّا جَاءَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ وَالنِّسَاءَ يَنْصُرُ بَعْضُهُنَّ بَعْضًا قالت عائشة ما رأيت مثل ما يلقى المؤمنات لجلدها أشد خضرة من ثوبها Aisha, when she saw the green mark on her arm from her husband abusing her, physically abusing her. When the Prophet ﷺ came, as Ikrimah narrated in the hadith, he said, That women, they aided each other. Women, they aided each other. Aisha said to uh, Tanima, no, we're going to the Prophet ﷺ. When the Prophet came home, Aisha went to him and she said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, I've never seen, I've never seen Muslim women, I've never seen believing women experience the like of which I've seen this woman experience of physical abuse. She said the green mark on her arm is greener than the overgarment that she has on. Obviously, if a person is very light-skinned, if they get hit, it's going to leave a green-black mark on them, right? Aisha said that I've never seen believing women experience what I've seen this woman experience. He said, she said that the mark on her is greener than the overgarment that she has on. <laughs> she has on a green garment, but the green mark on her arm is greener than the garment that she has on. Meaning he hurt her. And Aisha wasn't standing for it. She said, no, we're taking this to the Prophet Unlike what the sisters do today. Right? You sisters sit back and you say nothing. Nothing. You know, the sister, you know your sister in Islam is marrying a brother who is a domestic abuser. You know because he abused you. You know because he abused another one of your friends. You know and you don't say nothing because it's not your place to say nothing. But it is your place to backbite her when it, go, when it goes down. It is, the back, it is your place to backbite her and talk about her after everything goes down, right? But it's not your place to say anything when your sister in Islam is about to marry a domestic abuser. You guys kill me. And y'all going to be responsible before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yawm al-qiyamah. Listen to me. Ikrimah said, And women, during that time, they aided one another. They helped one another. And will cut you off of being a victim. You damn right. Absolutely. And y'all sit back and y'all say nothing. 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 MashaAllah tabarakallah. He's Ikrima said, When Nisa young sort of and women, they aided one another during that time. Aisha, when she saw that, she said, No, not gonna happen. Not my friend. And she went to the Prophet. She said, Oh Messenger of Allah, the green mark on her arm is greener than the garment that she has on. 
وسمع أنها قد أتت نبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فجاء ومعه ابنان له من غيرها. And so the husband, the husband heard that his wife went to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. So he grabbed two of his sons, right? He go the the you know coming as the you know the I'm not that bad of a guy, right? I'm not that bad of a guy. Sisterhood there is no sisterhood. Let's just call it what it is. There is no sisterhood. Every sister in our community is for self. There is no sisterhood. Sisterhood is dead. That stuff played out, you know, back in the the, the mid nineties. <laughs> that that played out in the mid nineties. All the sisters is for self. We want to marry our husband, ride off into the sunset, and hope nobody else asks about my husband. Hope nobody, my husband don't want to marry nobody else because, you know, the Islamic community is dysfunctional. And I don't want none of that in my life. And I just want to live my life as a, you know, Muslim and die and, you know, go to Jannah. MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. Grandiose ideas of, you know, what Muslim life is supposed to be like. A bunch of backbiting, scorned women. You're daggling right about that. You ain't never lied. You ain't never lied. We get so wrapped up in our pain, that's all we see is pain, right? If you a hammer, then everything you see look like a nail. If you see the world through pain, then that's all you see is pain. That's all you know how to interact with people is through pain, right? What did the Prophet Wasallam say when he tried to make, you know, he tried to make peace with Quraysh and they still wanted to fight? He said, and they were consumed by war. That's all they know is war. I'm trying to make peace with them. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to make a peace treaty and just live in peace. But when a person has been scorned, so, you know, has been hurt so many times, they don't know peace. All they know is pain. All they know is pain. They don't know peace. Peace don't live here no more. And it seems like the sisters in our communities, all they see, the Muslim community, through the pain of their... And when you listen to them talk, it's all pain. It's all pain, man. All of it. I don't mess with them sisters because this. And I don't mess with them It's all pain. As if our entire Islamic experience on this earth has been nothing but pain. Has been nothing but pain. So when he heard that his wife went to the Prophet ﷺ, he grabbed two of his children from a previous marriage and he ran to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ asked him, you know, are these your two sons? And he said, yes. And she spoke to Mima. She said, oh, Messenger of Allah, Wallahi, ma li ilayhi min dhambin illa anna ma ma'ahu illa bi'aqna anni min hadihi wa akhadat hudbatu thawb min thawbiha. She said, oh, Messenger of Allah, the only reason, the only sin that I committed, the only thing that I did wrong with this man is the fact that he's impotent. He can't please me. She grabbed a piece of her garment and she went like this to show the Prophet ﷺ how small, um, you know, his private area was. And the Prophet ﷺ, he just smiled because the woman was, you know, very, you know, you know, very uh, bold about you know, what she was saying. She said, basically, the only thing that, only thing I did wrong was that the man just couldn't handle the fact that he's impotent. And the husband spoke and said, no, um, O Messenger of Allah, I provided this one, I've given this woman ample sexual relations. However, she wants to go back to her first husband. And that's pretty much why. The point here is the assistance of the other women in the community. 
and there's no social or communal responsibility or accountability. So sisters continue to be abused by brothers who continue to get away with it. And our children continue to believe that this dysfunction is normal. Our children continue to believe that this dysfunction is normal. It's normal. This is the new norm in the Islamic community. Dysfunction. And so we have generational abuse, right? Grandmothers who've been abused to daughters who have been abused to mothers who have been abused to daughters who have been abused and to granddaughters who are now being abused. Because there's high rates of domestic violence amongst young people. So now you got young people in marriages, 20, 21, 22, who are granddaughters in a line of abused women, generational abuse. The woman who, uh, the word in Arabic for the for the woman who, he called her Nashiza, Turidu Rifa'a, that she was the one creating marital discord because she actually wants to go back to her first husband, Rifa'a. And the Prophet ﷺ told her, well, that, that can't happen until... Um, until she consummates the marriage with you because he divorced her for, th for the third time so she can't even go back to the first husband. <clears throat> we have generational abuse. Grandmothers who are victims of domestic abuse, uh, mothers, daughters, and granddaughters all in a line of abused bitter women. The Prophet ﷺ in ending, he said, the Prophet ﷺ got up and he addressed his community because he started to see and see this epidemic of this pre-Islamic behavior of beating women that they still have not gotten a rid of, right? They haven't eradicated this, right? So the Prophet ﷺ stood up and addressed the community and he said that women have come to the houses of the Prophet of, of Muhammad ﷺ for you know this night, and there were 70. Imagine 70 women flocking to the house of the Prophet ﷺ to complain about the abuse they were experiencing from their husbands. The Prophet ﷺ said, All of them complaining about the abuse that they received from their husbands. He said, He said that you will not find the men that put their hands on their women to be the best of men. You will not find them to be the best of men. Alright? So this uh, this is you know just just a drop in the bucket, man. I mean, like there's there's so much there's so much to you know to be discussed with this um, topic. Nonetheless, um, for those of uh, you know the Muslim women who say things like, "Oh, you know, none of the imams are talking about this." Okay, so now what? None of the imams are talking about it. Just a broad blanket statement. None of the imams are talking about this. And you, you have Muslim women who, you know, and, and the sad thing about it is that when these things are, you know, spoken about, it's almost like what the larger community does to the Muslim community. Why don't imams speak out against, you know, terrorism? It's like, imams have been speaking about terrorism. Why don't y'all, why do y'all conveniently choose to ignore when we do speak about it? Why do you conveniently choose to ignore? Because it gives more credence to your comment when you stand in public and say, none of the imams are speaking about it. 
it gives credence to your comment because now you can say, well, I never heard nobody speak about it. Well, you know, as the scholars have a the principle that the lack of knowledge of something doesn't mean that the thing doesn't exist. Just because you don't know that it exists doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But you have sisters that get out here and say, oh, you know, none of the imams are speaking about this and blah, blah, blah. Man, go, have a, go have a seat. Have several seats. Talking about imams are not talking about this. For years, imams have been talking about this stuff. It just doesn't get the credit that it does. Not that imams do it for credit, but don't simply say that none of the imams are speaking about this. <laughs> and then we'll then you know when somebody from you know the the another community speaks about it, then we'll say, "Oh, mashallah, I'm so glad you're speaking about these issues because none of the imams." It's like, man, let's go sit down somewhere, man. Have a seat. Have several seats. So glad you're speaking about these issues because nobody's speaking about these issues. Are you kidding me? You conveniently choose to ignore the African-American representation of Islam. And these are some of our own sisters, feminists, who want to remove, have so much hatred in their heart, so much pain running through their blood. You want to remove African-American representation from the Islamic narrative altogether. Sorry, not going to happen. As long as I'm here, not going to happen. As long as I'm here, not going to happen. African-American representation of the Islamic narrative is here. It's here. I'm, I'm not going nowhere until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides otherwise. But yeah, you, you got these, you know, academic, you know, Muslim woman feminists, you know, jump out here. You know, you, you, you promote every other narrative other than your own. Instead of putting your hand in the hands of imams and students of knowledge that are actually out here putting in work, we would rather condemn them and blame them and belittle them or how, how ignorant they are and how because they don't have a PhD or because they didn't graduate from this university or that university, then that makes them ignorant. But they've been putting in the work. The only reason why you have a platform to speak is because you are stepping on the backs of the imams that preceded you. And you, you're not in a position to, to, to critique the imams. If you got a degree in anything other than Islam, you don't have the position to critique the imams and the students of knowledge. You're not that person. You're not that person. Stay in your lane. Speak about the things that you are proficient in and you are qualified to speak about. But you are not qualified to condemn and to blame and to critique the, the, the leadership of his Leadership critiques leadership. You're not in a position to do that. If I decide to jump out there and criticize another imam or criticize or whatever the case may be, I have a, I have a right to do that. Because I'm criticizing myself because I'm in that same lane. But you don't have a right to jump out there and say what imams ain't doing and what imams are doing. And you, you live in your little bubble, hiding behind the three letters that represent your whole repertoire. PhD. That's all you stand for. You don't have nothing behind that. I don't have a PhD. I don't have a PhD. I don't have letters that I hide behind that represent me. Letters don't represent me. My faith in God represents me. That's it. My faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the, 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 the competence that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me that I'm grateful for represents me. Three letters, PhD, that's in front of my name or in back of my name does not represent me. And they damn sure don't represent the Islamic community. 
And it damn sure does not give you a platform to critique and blame and criticize the leadership that has come. Only leadership can do that. You're not in a position to do that. You're not in a position. So let me end with some things that I think will be very helpful. Um, I, I'm very tempted to call out some names. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, but I'm very, very tempted to call out some names because it's 2017, man. I, I'm really, I don't have the energy to be diplomatic, man. Call a spade a spade. It is what it is. I, I don't, I don't particularly care. I mean, like you can get in line with the rest of the people who have taken issue with me. I really don't care. I don't. I don't because it's it's not contributing to our narrative. It's, it's subtracting. It's taking away. <laughs> right, exactly. As soon as you challenge them to a debate, go do research and you're uneducated, blah, 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 and all they jargon. It is what it is. Stay in your lane of competency and you'll be okay. But you step outside of that lane and you, you know what I'm saying, like you, you start talking about imams and start criticizing imams, you play in a dangerous game because you ain't built like that. You're not built like that. All right, so some of the things I think that will help the community is, number one, we have to remove the stigma that is surrounding domestic abuse. We tend to think that when sisters are in a domestically abusive situation, that there's something wrong with them. They shouldn't have married into that situation. You know, they shouldn't have did this, and they should have known better. And I'm, like, constantly saying to sisters, like, you got to be kidding me. You, you on Instagram, you on Facebook, you talking about sisters, you know, you sitting from a place of privilege. Until you have been in a domestically abusive situation and you've experienced that firsthand, you should not be so quick to be judgmental of sisters who've been in those situations. You don't, you don't, you don't know. Obviously, it didn't start off as abuse. Nobody goes into, you know, walk into 50 punches to the face. Nobody walks into that. that there was a process that was a psychological conditioning that this man was walking this woman on. Like, nobody just walks into that. Sisters need to start using a logic. Sisters need to start being smart and using common sense. Damn it, if common sense was the, the only issue, we wouldn't even be having these discussions. you got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. So the only sisters that, that get caught in these domestically abusive situations are sisters who don't, don't use their intellect? Sisters who don't use common sense? <laughs> you have got to be kidding me, man. How do you judge? Malakum kefatakamun, as Allah says in the Quran, what is wrong with you? And, and how do you judge? Understand something about a person who is a domestic abuser. Domestic abusers don't have qualities or characteristics that you can see from the very beginning. You don't know that you're marrying a domestic abuser. You don't find that out until later. Nobody marries, nobody, you know what I mean? I, nobody walks into a, a domestically abusive situation for you to say, sisters need to start doing this and sisters need to start doing that. SubhanAllah, how dismissive is that? So basically, the sister goes into a situation, right, and... And, and and she's abused and all of this other stuff. And then after that, she's still abused by the Muslim community because now we're calling her stupid. <laughs> she's stupid for marrying into the situation anyway. She should have saw that coming. MashaAllah, she should have saw that coming, right? She was in a domestically abusive situation and she should have saw that coming. You gotta be kidding me, man. You 
You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like, subhanAllah, they're already in an abusive situation and we create this stigma. And this is why, believe it or not, this is why some sisters stay in abusive situations because they know that ain't nobody out there going to help you. Once you come out of that abusive situation, like, I, removing yourself from him is one thing. Removing yourself from the home is one thing. Dealing with the psychological trauma is a whole other journey. It's a whole other journey. And there's no cushion from the community to help with that journey. Because the stigma supersedes the help that she would receive from the community. So now she's looked at as brainless, as stupid from going into the situation. Why didn't she, you know, see this? Why didn't she see that? Whatever the case may be. It's like you furthering the, the pain. It's like you're an outcast. Absolutely. So that's number one. We need to remove the stigma surrounding domestic abuse. Number two, we need to stop letting men isolate women from the community, from their family, from their friends. Stop letting men isolate you. It's a process. You got to see it early on from the very beginning. When you haven't, you, know, you married your daughter off and then you don't see your daughter for months on end. And you know, you know what I mean? Like, come on, man. You got to stop letting men isolate you from your family when you start to see that no no man wants like okay sometimes a family might be dysfunctional okay but you you lessen you kind of learn how to love them from you know a distance but you don't completely isolate her from her family and when a woman sees that a man is doing that he's cutting you off from your friends cutting you off from your community cutting you off from you know your, your family all right understand what's happening to you Understand what is happening to you. Stop letting men isolate you from your community, from your friends, from your families. Because once he gets you on an island by yourself, that's when the abuse starts. Um, there's um, Shani Baraka Women's Resource Center in Newark, New Jersey. Alhamdulillah. You sisters, share your resources, man. Network. Share your resources, whether in Philadelphia, whether in Jersey, whether D.C., Maryland, you know, New York. Share your, you know, share your, your resources. Number three, we have to create communal responsibility for all forms of abuse. There's going to be a responsibility. The entire community is responsible. And how do we make people responsible? As we begin to address abuse openly. So men feel ashamed. They feel the social pressure. Right? They feel the social pressure of the Islamic community. That more imams, more students of knowledge are doing lectures and, you know, at least sticking some of this information into some of their lectures to create an awareness. To create an awareness so that, you know, men will feel more ashamed and they will be more responsible in front of the community. Uh, number four. Um, educate yourself to the Islamic guidelines regarding the husband's rights and what they are and what they are not. And under what conditions should those rights be fulfilled? You understand? Educate yourself, sisters, to what the husband... And brothers, too. You need to educate because you might have been miseducated. There's a lot of miseducation about Islam going on in our communities. There's a lot of miseducation going on in our communities about Islam. And about what the husband's rights are. And about what the wife's rights are. Understand. So educate yourself. Create halakas. You know women's halakas and women's circles. And talk about the rights of the brothers. 
you don't necessarily need a man to teach you what the man's rights are. You need somebody who is educated to teach you what the man's rights are. Because obviously if the man is teaching what the man's rights are, it's, he's speaking from a place of bias. That, that's a bias. If I'm teaching sisters what the husband's rights are, then obviously I'm going to you know, embellish that a little bit and I'm going to make it seem like it's more than what it really is. Sisters, you got to get educated, man. Stop with all these fashion shows and all this other stuff, man. Get to some real learning. Get to some real learning. It's not difficult. Education is very... We got sisters that are educated. And if you don't have sisters that are educated, you got, you know, courses. You got, you know, things going on in the community where you can learn. They will take advantage of you because of your ignorance. Don't you come in talking about, I just want a brother to teach me my religion. Got one. <laughs> got one. Oh, you don't know your religion? You need a brother to teach you religion? Okay, I'll be that dude. I'm going to teach you your religion. And I'm going to miseducate the crap out of you so I can continue manipulating your behind. Invest in yourself, man. Take a course. Understand, learn your rights. Learn the rights of the, the men. That's the most important. It's not necessarily learning what your rights are. Yeah, that's important too. But the thing is, is that if you marry a, a good Muslim man, he's going to give you your rights regardless. But what you need to know more importantly is what is his rights? What is What are his rights? So that you are upon clarity about that. So he can't use that to manipulate you. Nah, you're not going to do that to me. I know what your rights are. <laughs> Knowledge is, avail is available and accessible. Absolutely. No excuse for that. If you are ignorant, sometimes I don't even respond. Send email, send me an email or you send me a, a, a message on Instagram, send me a message on Facebook about something that you could have learned yourself. I'm not even going to respond. And many of the sisters know I'm not going to respond. You don't have to ask me, what's the process of divorce? Negro, you don't know what the process of divorce is? Why are you married? <laughs> Why are you married? If you don't know what the process of divorce is, why are you married? I'm good on that. I'm not responding to none of those emails because this it's redundant and you should know better. You should know better. If you had the maturity to go into the marriage, then you should have the maturity to know how to get the hell out of the marriage if, when stuff go haywire. You don't come to somebody asking somebody, how do I get out of this marriage? How did you get into it? <laughs> how did you get into it? Why would you get into something that you don't know how to get out of? You've got to be kidding me. Yes, it is a laziness. Absolutely. And I'm not responding to that. Ask me something that's challenging. Make me go back and do some research myself. And let me come back to you with an answer. Don't ask me something you can just go do a Google search and get the answer for. Come on, man. Educate yourself to the Islamic guidelines regarding the husband's rights and what they are and what they are not. And under what conditions uh, should those rights be fulfilled? Number five, the first time the abuse happens, it has to be dealt with. The first time he even makes a threat to put his hands on you because some women have been taught to suffer in silence. You've been taught to suffer in silence. You've been taught that since you was a kid. You were abused as a kid and you were told to be quiet and shut up and keep it a secret and not say anything. And you that trickled over with you into adulthood. So now you, you have been conditioned to receive abuse and not say anything about it. You've been conditioned. Sometimes by our own parents. Our parents beat us. Our parents whoop us and then tell us to shut up. And you better not say anything. You know, we, we're conditioned to, 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 to tolerate abuse. 
You know, so we, we have the, the first time a man makes, you know, a threat to put his hands on you or put his hands on you, it has to be dealt with right there. Because if it's dealt with right there, then perhaps you will never have to revisit that again. Not necessarily the first hit is the last one, get out. We're not saying run for the hills. Because if the situation can be rectified, some men just have anger issues. Some men haven't been taught how to, you know, filter that anger and to talk things out and to, you know, deal with things. And, you know what I mean? Like, some men weren't taught that. So it's not that, you know, you want to stop him from becoming a domestic abuser, right? He's just using you as, you know, as the, you know, the as the way to start it off. But if you nip that in the bud from the beginning, then maybe you he never has to become. Because if you say, first time he hit me, I'm out. Alright, then he's going to go on and beat somebody else. He's going to go on and beat somebody else. And if that's the first time he's ever done that, or the first time he's done it to you, maybe he beat somebody else before, but nobody ever dealt with that. Nobody ever handled him the way that you're about to handle him. Oh, no, no. First of all, I'm going to fight you back. That's number one. <laughs> you ain't going to put your hands on me and just get away with that. I'm going to fight you back. You're going to beat me up, but at the same token, you're going to know that uh, you ain't going to never put your hands on me without it being a fight. Sisters, stop being punks. You talk so much crap about other sisters. And then when the man is there putting his hand, no, nah, fight back, man. Fight back. Fight back. Even if you get your behind whooped, fight back. At least he knows that this ain't going. This ain't going to go the way you thought it was going to go. <laughs> this ain't going to go the way that you thought it was going to go. And then after it's all over, if we can learn how to reconcile that, then you need to get some help. <laughs> you need to get help. Or if he makes an attempt, or he grabs you, and then you just let him know, like, like that's not the way that we're going to work. This is not the way we're going to, you know. You're not fighting back to win. Obviously, you're not fighting back to win. You're fighting back to let him know the same way you would deal with a bully in high school. If you get your butt whooped, so what? But at least he knows that you're not a pushover and that every time you put your hands on me, we're going to fight. I'm not fighting back to win. I'm fighting back to let you know that this is not going to be, uh, you know, just a simple task. Let me hit you and keep it moving. No, sometimes calling the police makes the situation worse. Sometimes calling the police makes the situation worse. Which is why, you know, we have Muslim police officers, we have people in the Muslim community, you know, that can step in and that can help out with those things. You know, we, we're trying to salvage the marriages. We're not saying, like, this happened, run. You know what I mean? Like, if it's the first time, then we can salvage the situation, we can correct him and put him in a situation where he can learn how to get some help. So then that way, even if y'all do separate, at least he knows how to channel that anger. At least he's learned. You know, how to deal with that. And not just that we're just going to toss him to the side and say, he put his hands on you, run. Okay, so now when you run, get out of that situation. He marries somebody else and does the same thing. And in many instances, the police don't do a damn thing. They don't do anything. We have to police our own, man. Um, and number six, uh, be careful of mentioning previous bouts with abuse during your sit-down. All right. Sometimes exposing the fact that you've been in an abusive situation before uh, makes you a victim. Sometimes when you expose the fact that you were abused in a situation and you're saying, you know, I was in an abusive situation before and I don't want to go through that. You know, I don't want to go through that again or whatever. In his mind, he's like, oh, you've been abused before. OK, 
Because if he's a domestic abuser, he already knows how to manipulate you. He already knows how to manipulate you. So in his mind, he's thinking, oh, she's been abused before? Oh, she's been that she's been through that process before. Okay, I can take her through that process again. And he knows you're vulnerable. So sometimes it might be a good thing not to say at so early on in the stage of the sit-down that you've been in an abusive situation. Right? If you act like sheep, you're gonna attract wolves. Keep telling you guys that all the time. You act like sheep, you're gonna attract wolves. This is not the time to appear vulnerable. I'm just looking for a good brother. I've been hurt so many times and I've been hurt so many times and I've been, you know, I've been in so many hurt relationships or whatever the case may be. And you come off like the damsel in distress. And then you get the savior, you know, the savior brother, the rescuer who want to come in and rescue and put you in another situation. You know, so, you know, it's, you know, it's very important that you don't expose that. And, you know, if it's not necessary, you know. If it's not necessary. So, this is what I wanted to present in the loss of Pena who Tyler knows best. I mean, obviously a man would disagree with me. It's cool. It's cool. My mother was a victim of domestic violence. Right? I was a victim of domestic violence. I have a scar on my head right here from a guy who hit me in the head with a pipe after blacking in my mother's eye and beating on my mother. I have to live with this scar on my head for the rest of my life. So my mother, as well as I, were victims of domestic abuse. So, yeah, this is this is more than just a lecture for me. This is trying to help you guys protect yourself, as well as men. As, as well as men, man. We, we have to learn how to, you know, we have to learn how to channel that energy, man. Channel that 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 pain, man, and not take it out on you know on the women that are lost a to put under our authority. So is it a God complex that we we're suffering from, or is it just a case of hurt people hurting people? Because nine times out of ten, the child that grows up in a domestically abusive household will also resort to domestic abuse. You know. Yeah, I'm I'm sure, man. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of stuff, man. The the you know, men need to consult with other men to understand that, you know, putting your hands on a woman is not the solution. That's not the solution. I mean, it's nothing to be sorry about. It was an experience. And that experience is allowing me the, the energy that I have to give that to you right now. I'm not sorry for the situation that happened. My mother is deceased, but I mean, the situation, the experience still lives on with me. I've seen that with my own eyes. You know, you come home at 16 years old and you walk into your house and see your mother, with, you know, with her eye like this. You know, you're like, what the, what? You know what I mean? And I mean, at that time, I was carrying guns at that time. So, I mean, like, it almost put me in the situation. I mean, I was a 16 year old kid. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the experience. There's nothing to be sad about, nothing to be sorry about. It's, it's, it was an experience. It was an experience. But that experience is what is giving me that energy to be able to give this to you today. All right? Um, any, any questions? Any questions or comments? I got enough for, like, one or two questions. The voice in the back, that was my wife saying, 
I'm crazy for exposing that to you guys. The good thing is, is that my father actually happened to be at his girlfriend's house, which was very close by, and heard the commotion and came. And my father, at that time, was kind of a big dude. And um, <laughs> whatever happened, happened. <laughs> Just say that we we didn't see the guy coming around anymore. That was that was a that was the end of that. You know. So, you know, sisters, you got you guys got to form that sisterhood, man. You you got to form that sisterhood, man, and and you know, we have to do our part. We sitting around waiting for the leadership, Islamic leadership. If we sound if we we sitting around waiting for the masjid, like, no, we no longer waiting for that, man. How can we advise our father if they are abusive towards our mother? How can I play a role here? Um Sometimes, I mean, fathers might need to hear from other fathers. I mean, sometimes, you know, going to a men's group and things like <gasps> things like that, you know. Um, sometimes, you know, maybe, you know, bringing a police officer to the home and letting them see, you know, what the consequences of that is. You know, some states have very strict laws with that as it relates to domestic abuse. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm not an expert in terms of, you know, the help piece. You know what I mean? Like, um, Dr. Rashida Abdul Kabir out of Philadelphia. Uh, she deals with a lot of these situations, so um, maybe, you know, in the future, we can have her, you know, come on and, and talk a little bit more about the, the clinical aspect and what you can do in these type of situations. I, I'm not a clinician. That's that's not my job. I'm giving you the psychology of it, and I'm giving you from an Islamic perspective, um, you know, what Islam says about it. That's that's my job. The The clinical piece, you need a professional for that. And I don't know too many people um, uh, like Dr. Rashida, who's in this area, who's close by. Um, but I think you guys need to organize, you know, conferences, lectures and stuff like this that's surrounding this. Go to your local imam, go to your students of knowledge. You see all these lectures and all of these things coming up. It, it doesn't hurt to, you know, pick up, you know, a phone and say, hey, listen, yo, why are you guys not addressing these issues? How can we respectfully encourage her to get back into the religion? My mother went through a, um, I guess you're saying that your mother went through um, some issues like this. How to, and maybe, I don't know, distance herself from Islam. How do you get her to come back to Islam? Well, Islam wasn't the culprit. Islam, you know, didn't do it. And that's a process. I mean, you know, when a man is using the religion to justify the pain that he inflicts on his woman, obviously she starts to see Islam as, you know, part of the process. You know what I mean? She starts to see Islam as part of that, that abuse process. And so to distance herself from imams, you know, from, from the masjid, to distance herself from Islam, that's, that's a process. And, you know, she has to start to trust Islam and trust, you know, the community. And for, for the most part... Many many have lost trust in, in the Islamic community. Real talk. Many have lost faith in the Islamic community altogether. Which in turn begins to affect the way that they, you know, their faith in Islam. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, you got to advise with, with rift, with gentleness and leniency and, you know, and just try to, but because basically you're trying to restore their faith in something that they have actually lost faith in. That That's essentially what you're doing. And that's a whole other conversation, man. Whole other conversation. So I got to go. Um, you guys were great, mashallah to barakallah. So stay tuned for the next Man Logic, which will be next Thursday, be Ibn Ta'ala. Uh, title to be um, disclosed later. Yes, please um, restore your faith. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and foremost to restore your faith. Right? The Prophet told us, Jaddidu imanakum, renew your faith. Like faith is like a, a, a garment. You know, after you wear it enough, it starts to wear out. So you have to renew your faith. And I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for all of us who have been hurt by this, this monster of domestic violence. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to heal in, in a healthy manner and allows us to, you know, pull our resources together as a community and begin to protect, protect those in the, in the community that, you know, may in the future be, you know, uh, victims of domestic violence. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. وَصَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَى نَبِيْنُ Periscope, I'm sorry, you guys had to be quiet today. Sorry about that.